Hi everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. Today's episode is a special one. We're lucky to have not one, but two special guests to help us discuss the ABCs of how to find the right financial advisor, some of the pitfalls to look for, and basically the financial industry overall and what that means to consumers. Our first guest is Bob Veras. Bob is a big time thought leader an advocate for the financial planning profession, and we feel lucky to have him on the podcast today. For those of you that aren't familiar with Bob, he's been a commentator, author, and consultant in the financial services industry for more than 20 years. He's the editor and publisher of Inside Information. In 2016, he published his most recent book about the profession called The New Profession, and as you'll hear in this podcast, is currently working on a science fiction novel which sounds pretty cool too. Bob joined us via phone from sunny San Diego. Where's Dave and Ron Burgundy like to say San Diego? So his audio sounds a little different than the rest of ours. In fact, this was the first podcast where we had some real audio gremlins. At first, we thought the podcast was going to be a total loss, actually. But with the help of some of our expert engineer friends, I think we've saved it. A special thanks goes out to Matt Fisher and John Valentine for the extra help. So again, the audio may sound a little different, but we think the conversation was just too good to be sent straight to the big podcast in the sky. Our second guest offering some color commentary today is Robin Farzad. Robin is the host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure, which airs on NPR One and WCVE. In his past life, Robin was a senior writer for Bluebird Business Week covering Wall Street, international finance, and emerging markets, and is generally regarded as someone who knows a lot about everything, especially in the financial world. He too is an author, and you can check out his recent book, wherever you get your books, called Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. This marks Robin's second appearance on the podcast, and we thank him for coming back for more. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself and Dave O'Brien. If you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can check us out on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast, or drop the podcast a line at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here today is education and some fun, too. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help. So with that said, here's the EvoFi team talking with Bob Virus and Robin Farzad. Enjoy. Hello everybody and welcome to the EvoFi Podcast, a finance podcast for humans. Today in episode 17, we're featuring Bob Virus industry advocate, thought leader for the financial planning profession. Also, we've got our friend Robin Farzad of NPR's Full Disclosure with us. This makes Robin a second podcast alum, along with Neil Patel. So uh, we're very lucky to have I think that gets me here. free breakfast at Denny's or something. Uh, somewhere out in the it country. It gets you a yeah. free uh, Impossible Burger at Burger King. So welcome, Bob, to you. Bob's calling in from San Diego, California, and Robin's here in the studio. So welcome to, to you both. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so first, I have to say, uh, I feel a little bit nervous with both of you guys here. Um, you know, 
we're used to having uh what geeky. about me? Well, Dave, oh, Dave, okay. you always make me nervous. Uh, but there we go. No, I mean, we've, we were lucky to have you both here on the same podcast. Some may think that's actually nuts, but we're, as Dave mentioned before, we're looking to kind of have a good discussion. And we think with your both of your backgrounds, we can have some good, healthy discussion on the topic. So, again, just acknowledging that our day job as financial planners, uh, we do not pretend to be uh, TV or podcast personalities, but we'll do our best. So, all right. So, here's the deal. Uh, as you all know, as Robin knows, we always have our Evo 5 up front, and I gave Bob a little preview in advance. In fact, we sent the questions in advance, so we'll see if that works any better uh, going forward. Robin, you remember yours, by the way? It was a, was a song. You gave us a song. And you and got it, right? Been, yeah, off the bat. Yeah, I think you were the only person that's ever gotten the song. So no pressure, Bob. No pressure. So here's the deal. We're going to start off with um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I've, I've written four novels, you understand, so I'm actually uh, attempting another profession as we, as we speak. And um, But if, if I was going to get out of my normal comfort zone, I would love for somebody to appoint me the chairman of the SEC. Ooh. The SEC or the FCC? The Securities Exchange Commission. <laughs> oh, not the Atlantic Coast Conference? Yeah. I mean, you... you no. Yeah, that, that would be my second choice. Yeah. And so you're working on a novel. Well, I think, I think, well there may be an opening yeah, in about I'm, two years. I'm working, I'm working on my fifth right now, which is about somebody who was put into cryogenic sleep and sent to a star system. And he woke up and discovered that the star system had colonized 300 years previously by people who had discovered star travel, much, much faster star travel. And so he's wandering around 300 years in the future. Fascinating, actually. Um, is that the Elon Musk story? Had, had we implemented a fiduciary rule <laughs> at that point? I guess that's... At, at, at that point, money money doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of interesting. Well, that solves a lot of problems. Of course, I have a lot of opinions about how to reform our whole economic system, and I get to play with that a little bit. Hey, Bob, question. It's uh, on tangent on, on your aspirational job, but wasn't Bernie Madoff like the non-executive chairman of the NASD? Yeah, it was. He was in, I think his, his brother was a high-ranking official also. One of the things people don't really That's understand so well is Bernie Madoff, actually, Bernie Madoff actually threw SDC examiners out of his office. He became so exasperated. <laughs> oh, great. Bob, what's your favorite word? You know, I'm a writer. You can't ask a question like that. I, I, I like all of them. And... Uh, you know, if, if I had to pick one that a lot of people don't know very well, it's crepuscular. Oh, yes, I like that. Don't, Robin knows it. I don't. Dave, that's, Dave's going to pretend really? like he does. That, that's an SAT, you know, 600 on your English type. type. Yeah, crepuscular means Dusk. twilight. It's, it's the environment that the animals inhabit before, right after dawn, right, right as, as the world is getting a little bit light or in, in the evening when the, the world is getting darker. I love so it. if you'll oh notice, rabbits come out and, and forage in a crepuscular environment. They come out early morning, they sleep, and come out in the evening and forage again. It just basically means the twilight between light and dark. We may have to somehow weave that word into the title of the podcast, just, just heads up. I think that's what, are your, what are your thoughts on the crepuscularity of this bull market, Bob? <laughs> ah, touche. You know, you see what I did there? Yeah, That's yeah. You know, I, 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 
what I should probably do, if I want to be an exciting guest, I'd say, you know, three weeks from next Thursday, the market's going to crash, and everybody should get out in a hurry, and monetary policy is going to go to hell. And well, that's that, that's the whole purpose of, of, of the podcast, is we like to prognosticate. Uh, <laughs> we won't get into that today. See, I didn't realize this was a sleazy podcast. We have to maintain our G podcast. rating. Fiduciaries after dark. <laughs> so, but one of my favorite one of my favorite things about this profession is how easy it is to predict things, and how hard it is to not predict. Things. It's it's really tough to look at a, a, a set of data and realize the future is still entirely random, and so you get a whole bunch of false. Predictions. You get a whole bunch of people who get on, you know, the NBC or something, and they say, you know, the market's going to do this, monetary policy's going to do this, Fed's going to do something else, and they're inevitably wrong. But never, nobody ever holds them responsible. There's for no it. accountability. Did you ever hear Nouriel Rubini trying to poo-poo an economic recovery after 2009? Always he would go on and like, everybody is talking about the green shoots. The green shoot is going to be a fungus in the end. <laughs> 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 He's talking his own book. <laughs> Go ahead. I needed to do that. I, I haven't done that in a while. No, that's good. I was telling uh, Bob before the podcast that you're going to be the Ed McMahon today, kind of the uh, color guy. So, yes! Yeah, yes! Uh, <laughs> doing a great you job. are correct. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, what would you do differently if you knew no one would judge you? You know, I, I looked at that question. You guys sent me that question, and it, it seems to be inviting me to, to do something pleasing. <laughs> and, and so now I have to kind of tell you what my religion is, which is sort of sort of Buddhist and sort of Zoroastrian. And I, I grew up Christian and still have a lot of respect for a lot of what I read in the Bible. But I think we are all, at all times, being judged by those who came before us who are somewhere watching. And I know we'll be judged by people who come after us, who will take a look at our lives and how our lives influence them. You know, the, the Japanese worship their ancestors, but I think mostly what they're doing is worshiping the person who planted that beautiful tree 50 years ago that produces cherries. Um, the people who cleared this land and built this town, or this, this house. And so I, I think we're always being judged. I don't think there's ever a time we're not being judged, and so I'm not sure I want to step outside of the boundaries. It's a very good, deep, thorough answer that nobody's ever given before. So I said Gavin. That's awful. No one's ever provided that no type of depth yeah. to this answer. So well, we're off to a good start here. Either that or I'd run a Ponzi scheme. Okay. <clears throat> I like the first answer better. Bob, What's the, who, who's your okay. greatest of all time that comes to mind? First name that comes to mind in anything, business, sport, anything else. I know. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a writer and I play basketball as my, my sport. And so um, I'll give you two. Writer, by far and away, the best writer ever was William Shakespeare. Classic. I don't think there's, I, I, I think that there's kind of a long drop-off between number two, and number two might be home break. I was going to go with J.K. Um, in basketball, this is really controversial, but I think Will Chamberlain was the, the best ever. Will Chamberlain did whatever he wanted, basketball court. I don't think anybody nice else has ever oh, done that. So. <laughs> you went there. We read minds, Bob. You're 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 missing all the subversion on this end, man. And by the way, when yeah, I thought guys, if, guys, if we said you weren't going to be judged and you wanted to get really sleazy and indulgent and be like, I charge a triple load fund with five hundred basis points at the front and sell it at a bank branch. Yeah, you, you guys totally get me. <laughs> oh yeah. 
<laughs> Put that behind the paywall. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Bob, I uh, by the way, I just got that paywall thing because I heard your podcast this morning, Robin. So, oh, you were, did? Yeah, that was good. good. All right, Bob. So here's the fun one. In case the first four weren't fun enough, this is the name that tune section. Uh, and so Dave selected this for you today. We like to do a kind of a quick snippet of a song in the theme of the podcast, and then see if our guests can guess it. Uh, out of these 17 podcasts we've had, I think Robin here and maybe one other have ever gotten the song right, mainly because of my, of my uh, keen sense and deep cuts. But here, here's a here's a classic for you. So let's see if we okay. Can get... Well, I, I want to warn you guys that that I don't listen to music that was recorded after 1973. We should be so safe then. We should be safe then. Dave okay. knows you well. Here we go, Bob. <laughs> you got a smile so bright. You know you could have been a candle. I'm holding you so tight. You know you could have been a hand. The way you swept me off the feet. I, I, I don't know the you title. You could sing the chorus. Could have been a school. The next thing they're saying is you're so smart. You could have been a school book. You know you could have been some perfume. The way you do the things you do. Nice. Congrats, Bob. Perfect. The way you do the things you do by oh, the temptations. You. I think everybody gets Great the time fun. to the show. Good. We gave Jeff Brown a Jesse J song, so you should uh, feel lucky that we decided to go classic for you. Mm. All right, so in all seriousness, let's let's go ahead and kick off the real reason why you're here, which is uh, sharing your 35 years plus of experience in this profession and and how you've been instrumental, whether you've known it or not, this entire time in helping to create that profession. And again, hopefully Robin can jump in on some of these things here too, because I think there's lots of discussion to be had. But Bob, start start us off. Tell us about your background overall and, and how you ended up where you are uh, as the, one of the leading advocates in our space. Okay, well, I was a writer. I'm, I'm a writer. That's, that's all I do. That's, that's all I know. I have no marketable skills whatsoever, so I write instead. And um, I was a writer for magazines in the Atlanta marketplace. I also did some advertising writing, because that actually paid for In the Atlanta marketplace. And somebody asked me to be editor of a magazine. And I thought, that's really interesting. You know, I've never done that before, and I've always been on the writer's side, so I know what it would be like. I know what it's like to be a writer, and so I can probably relate to writers pretty well. So um, what do you have in mind? And they said, well, we got this magazine called Financial, The Financial Planner. And so I went in and talked to them about it, and I, they showed me some issues of The Financial Planner. It's the most god-awful thing you've ever seen in your life. It's horrible. Um, there was an article in it that talked about the 15 greatest life insurance salesmen of all time, <laughs> and and the stories were pretty sleazy. I mean, they, they you know they went door to door and they they misled people and got you know and, and they were kind of proud of it, you know. But they were part of the million dollar roundtable, so they had nice ben, trophies. Ben, yeah. Listen, look up Ben Feldman sometime. Ben Feldman used to say, "I sell dollars for nickels," and what he meant was you pay. You, you get a, a billion dollar life insurance policy and you're only paying, you know, $59.95 a month for it and you're a young person. And so, you know, here I am selling you a million dollars for fifty nine ninety eight a month every month until you die. And 
somehow people couldn't add up the, the anyway, it was, it was sleazy, it was awful. So I, I very nearly turned it down, and then they told me what they wanted to pay me, and so I decided I might try it after all. And found myself in the middle of the financial services profession, financial planning profession, in 1982. And financial planning was about making people's lives better, right? It was about, you know, giving people access to information that only the brokers had that allowed people to navigate this god-awful complicated financial system. And so I actually got to meet some financial planners, particularly board members of the International Association for Financial Planning, as we called back then. That was the precursor and to CFP board, people, right? It was, it, no, it was a precursor to FPA. Oh, FPA, okay. Financial Planning Association. And I, so I met those board members, and they were all salespeople. And they were all proud of the stuff. And worse was they were selling limited partnerships and tax shelters and annuities and basically sleazy products. And the difference between what they were doing and the idealistic idea of the profession that they were supposed to be promoting was as vast as the difference between here and the next stars. And so I edited the magazine as if we were a real profession and talked aspirationally about what advisors should do. And of course, this was not sitting well with board and with, but the readers loved it. And over all these years, I've been advocating that people need to become a profession and need to behave as professionals. And a number of people did over the years. And I think um, you guys are, are examples of that, although I don't, I don't think this podcast is supposed to be promoting you in any way. Um, but the difference, the, the, the daylight between what is and the, the aspiration is closing dramatically. And I've been writing about for 35 years. I've been pulling the, the profession in that direction as best I can. I wrote a book called The New Profession. basically talks about the goal, which is to become a profession. So that, that's kind of the background, and that's where I am now. I'm writing about what financial planners do and how they can do things better and what the, um, the environment is that they're operating in, that they operate better, and trying to be a wind at the back of the real fiduciaries, real professionals. And Bob, one of the songs that I was considering for this is what a long, strange trip it's been, because we really have, over the past, say, 40 years, gone through... Uh, a landscape where if an American citizen wanted to get some advice about what they should do with their financial lives, uh, they really weren't getting advice. You know, They might have a, a stockbroker who could tell them you should buy these things. And some of those people are really good and honest and ethical or an insurance agent who would you know, steer them away from something bad. And, and to your point, there were an awful lot of folks who were profiting richly from not doing those things, um, which kind of gets us to... Here we are today. You know, we've seen uh, regulation uh, be proposed, be passed, be um, taken away by uh, by the courts. We've seen new regulation proposed at the SEC, which is not necessarily consumer friendly, though it's very uh, you know Wall Street and insurance industry friendly. So, for somebody listening, and, and this is a question for Robin too is, you know, we've got this financial services industry. We've got bankers, brokers, insurance agents, senior vice presidents of wealth management, which is my favorite. What does that mean? We've got registered investment advisory firms. 
how can somebody make sense of it all today? Uh, there are all kinds of advertising uh, messages out there. Everybody is saying we're doing what's right for you. At the same time, Wells Fargo seems to be in the headlines every other week doing the opposite. And uh, how is an individual supposed to make sense of it all? And then we can go from there. I want to hear what Robin says before I answer. I've got a, I've got an answer, but I haven't heard Robin um, dispense his words of wisdom yet. I got to tell you, I took a bizarre journey in this in that <clears throat> when I graduated from college, it's back in, in 98, the only job you could get, uh, you know, you had to duck to not get an offer from Wall Street. And I took a job with Goldman Sachs Wealth Management. And um, back then it was, I mean, the apotheosis, anything these guys do touches, anything they touch turns to gold. They're going to go public. Everybody wanted to, Goldman to take them public. It was back when the, and the investment bankers ruled the roost. And then to see the place from the inside, I mean, to kind of parachute in after all the presentations about culture and teamwork and the clients and making markets and building bridges in Ghana and, and everything else like that. And you see it's kind of pitch book and commission churning and, you know, sleazy things like the penalty bid on IPOs and uh, really banking on the client's ignorance for these things. It was a real uh, rude awakening and, and an education for me. And, um, I'd realized that I need to go back to what I did in, in college and enjoyed, which was writing. And it's just amazing to me that these people uh, can, can surround themselves, inoculate themselves with this force field of BS speak that is, you know it, Dave. I mean, if you call out some of these things that they're not calling it a commission schedule or something, it's like a paper tiger. You could push it over. And that's why I think a lot of people on Wall Street are terrified of Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you know, Harvard Law School, vintage Elizabeth Warren, who knows yep. regulation. They were terrified of uh, a congressman there from Newton, you know, before he retired, Barney Frank. And, um, you know, my, my thrust in this is it took me a good 20 years traversing, you know, both the being on the sell side and then going and working for places like Smart Money and Business Week and the New York Times to realize how much simplicity and the democratization of, of uh, investing and financial planning. Uh, that's that's a, a kind of a, a growing truth out there, but not many people are paid to preach that truth, if you know what I mean. Right? People, I, I, I can't tell you how many people are shocked, how many adults who were you know, math people and everything, when you tell them the rule of 72 and everything, like, no freaking way, right? And the market over long over the long run, the, 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 the core you know, return, if you take the Ibbotson numbers, is like 9.2%. They're like, no way, right? And so they'll turn around because it's so terrifying and pay a Wells person or pay a, you know, a, you know Fidelity Contra fund or whatever it is. And that it took me a good 20 years to realize all of the uh, obfuscation and cynicism that's baked into that. And so um, that's why it's nice to meet guys like John and Dave and, you know, Bob, to read your, to read your stuff out there, which is almost like, Franciscan and puritanical like in the way it calls out sleaziness in the industry. I feel like it's you're such an important species. Like if, if there's no one calling that out, then everybody just looks the other way. You know, one of the things that I, I would invite every consumer to do, and I've done this myself, um, as you can imagine, periodically I find myself in New York City and somewhere near Wall Street and talking to somebody and interviewing somebody, and then often... Before I go to the hotel, I'll go and have a drink at one of the watering holes on Wall Street. And there's only about three of them, literally. 
and they're always crowded, and they're always raucous, and you hear some of the most amazing conversations of people who are celebrating their their latest sale, yeah. celebrating the commission printing. And you can sit there for hours and not once hear any celebration of a great outcome for a client. Mm. It's always a great outcome for you. It's always, man, we sold this, you know, we got away with something, we did this, we earned this commission, you know, we're we're in tall cotton, you know. And one of the things that stunned me when I first got into this business early on was the idea that the best investments, nobody pays people to sell them. And the worst investments, you have to pay a lot of money for people to sell them. So there's a double whammy. You've got people who are, pre, who are earning by virtue of doing a great job recommendations from advisors and market share. And then you have people who couldn't earn by doing well in the market, by doing doing great work for their clients. And so they have to pay a whole bunch of money to brokers, to for the brokers to gather assets in their funds or in their deals, whatever their deals are. So the double whammy is you get a crappy product and you have to pay a lot of money for it. And a lot of times the, the a lot of money you pay is not disclosed because buried somewhere in disclosures, which are, you know, I, I had a joke once, in, or a, a cartoon in my uh, newsletter once. It has a guru sitting at the top of a mountain. Somebody has climbed up there, and the guru says, my son, the secret of life is actually hidden in the back of every mutual fund perspective. <laughs> and that would be the place where nobody would find it. Nobody would ever read it. So... so you know, you've, you've, you've got all these factors working against the average consumer and, you know, not not being aware of these issues is, is a real killer for, I think, a lot of people who are trying to live a prosperous life. And so let me just follow up with two questions on that. One, I think I'll reserve for later, which is kind of like, wow, there's so much messaging going on out there in the you know, advertising world about we put your best interests first and, you know, happy people who are on a golf course or a sailboat uh, envisioning, you know, this beautiful life. Um, at the same time, it seems like, you know, to, to your point about no one at those watering holes on Wall Street is asking each other about, you know, what was a great outcome that you've been able to deliver for a client lately? What is it that people really want? What is it that consumers really need? And, and well, they, they need something that's not forthcoming. They need clarity about who is on their side and who is on the side of the brokerage firm and their own side, if that makes sense. And, you know, we've, we've gone back and forth about this with the SEC, and I'm sure Robin like that with, with, with some interest, mm. in, and particularly lately with this Regulation BI. But the SEC is... I, I would say strangely, but I actually understand what's going on, that they, they've been reluctant to enforce a distinction between people who are working on behalf of their customers or clients and the people who are slyly telling them, the, the wolves in sheep's clothing, if you will, you know, say, you know, we're, we're working on your behalf, but they're really not. 
See, yeah, that's the but, that's but, that's the really shocking kind of Upton Sinclair jungle thing for me. And I and when I met Dave and John, this is something that I ask a lot of people. If you walk from Homestead, Florida, up onto kind of Walla Walla, Washington, and ask every tenth person, and don't use the term fiduciary or anything, but if you say it's law that your financial advisor, broker, XYZ mutual fund must prioritize your interests ahead of his or the firm's XYZ, XYZ. How many, what fraction of the thousand people you would pull tell you that, no, that's absolutely codified, that's law? Yeah, I think that's, and, and that works to the advantage of the brokerage firm, and they have worked hard with bags of money stuffed in people's pockets um, in, in, in Washington to make sure that that distinction is not made, that there's that, that it's not clear who is. I mean, it's it's almost to me, it's almost as axiomatic as if you're going to drink your your municipal uh, water, you are substantially sure that you're protected against you know coliform bacteria or 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 things from the um, I don't know the 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 butchering plant nearby or the tannery. I mean, things go wrong on occasion, but it was never out of out of neglect or salutary neglect. That this is statutory. We have an FDA for this. We have an EPA for this. And I think people fail to recognize how kind of cyclical the regulations are. There was a huge pendulum swing after 08 and 09, and then an easing of that when when memories became very short term after 2012 and 2013. That's actually that actually brings up a really interesting point because. Um yeah, I've, I've watched the SEC for years, and I, you know, at first I was befuddled, and then I realized what was going on. You're an SEC staffer, and the brokerage firm hires the guy who used to work at the desk next to you for, let's say, a seven-figure salary, a decent seven-figure salary. And then when you meet with the brokerage firms, you're meeting with the guy who used to sit at the desk next to you, who says... You know, if you play ball, you can get a pretty good deal once you leave. And you're motivated to play ball because you've got this opportunity waiting for you after you serve your three or four years on the SEC, and so your regulations tend to favor the things that are being proposed by the guy you used to sit in the desk next to you. And then you leave, and you're the guy you used to sit at the desk next to the person you're talking to at the SEC over and over again. And so the SEC basically, I mean, the the brokerage firms basically captured the SEC to do their bidding. And so I watched that, and I saw how it worked, and I thought, I wonder how many other areas of the the American economy are working exactly the same way. You know, this can't just be a phenomenon in our industry. I imagine it's probably pretty wide no, look in, look in Congress, the people that, that ran the, the telecommunications and technology committee, like Billy Tauzin or anything, and flipping and becoming telco lobbyists, they call it the revolving door, right? Look at look at uh, federal yep. prosecutors, right, who then go off and become, they get these, I wouldn't say they become necessarily criminal defense attorneys, but they get these huge uh, cash outs. The optionality is in the private sector. So let me ask a question of Robin and Bob. So all of this is very high level, right? This is at the corporate level. This is at the you know the marble hallways of the SEC headquarters, um, right by the Amtrak station in downtown DC. Um, it's a, the lobby is a lot nicer than when you get upstairs. It's very Awful. gray, windowless, uh, kind of sad. So, okay, we've got these 
big Wall Street firms and insurance companies with hundreds of millions of dollars of lobbying money. And, and I think it's probably not falling on deaf ears to our listeners that, yes, they are definitely lobbying for their best interests, not ours as individuals. Yes. So, so what are the questions that consumers should be asking these days, uh, you know, with the fiduciary role coming and going or wherever it happens to be now, um, some of those, some terms have almost become meaningless. Um, what are those questions that people can ask now to make sure they're getting what they expect? They use the word make sure, and I don't know that there is a way to make sure. Um, brokerage firms are pretty clever, and so, you know, I think it's more difficult now than it might have been all those years ago when people were just openly selling stuff to, to know. And and all of us, and I think Robin can agree with this, we've all written that article that says, here's what to look for in an advisor, and we've all been disappointed in the results. That whatever we wrote really didn't totally give you a guaranteed way to know this person on your side. Well, so I can I can tell you things if you can take away that absolute. I, I might be able to tell you some things to give you hints about it. Well, how about this? Uh, your mom just called you and said, you know, I just met with an advisor. What are the questions that somebody should make sure they have answered before that person starts providing their mother with advice? That, that actually did happen to me, so I, I do have that experience. Um, and, you know, the, the first thing is, does this person seem to show a sincere interest in what you want to do? Are they, or are they moving very quickly to product solution and a, a, a foreordained agenda, if you will? So that's the, that's the, the first tell, if you will. Um, another tell is what sort of I guess the, the, what sort of firm do they work with, you know? And I, I would tend to avoid, at all costs, somebody who is a captive agent of the insurance company. But, you know, then you've got people who are working with independent insurance organizations. And, and then there are an awful lot of duly registered financial planners who, they, they're SEC registered, but they make most of their money on sales. So... What the default is, what, what my default is, is what did they recommend? I want to see what they recommended. They came back and they said, all right, here's what I think you should, you should do. And the, what they think you should do has a couple of annuities in there. It has a non-traded read in there. It has, I don't know, one of the stories I told in, in the article I recently wrote, um, somebody recommended bonds that, as near as I can tell, will never, ever earn a return. Yeah, that's right. Because of the way they're structured. And if you look at, after the fact, if you look at what they recommend, you can generally see the commission influence in there. But it's not easy to see that when someone's just sitting down and talking to you. It's like doctors who have a great bedside manner. You can't really for sure tell. Now, one of the things I would ask for is a fiduciary oath. I'd ask for something in writing that says very clearly, I will act on your behalf as a fiduciary. And most of the brokerage firms won't let their, I think all the brokerage firms won't let their brokers sign that because they know that they can't defend that in court. They know they can't defend the recommendation that the broker will give in, in retrospect in court as, as a fiduciary recommendation. 
So if there's one tell that, that, that's really good, I think, it's that fiduciary oath. So, do, so are they, are most quote-unquote advisors that work at brokerage houses, are they forbidden to sign a fiduciary oath? My understanding is yes. That, that's, I've never heard of anybody who offered a fiduciary oath and then had a client come back with a signed fiduciary oath or a prospect, I should say, from that brokerage firm down the street. What, what you do is, you, you, if you're a, a, a true fiduciary, you say, here's my oath, and I'm prepared to live up to this, and we have legal redress if I don't. So this is, I'm giving you additional legal redress if there's a question about my motives ever. And I would invite you to invite the broker down the street who also wants to have your business to find this document or a document similar to this and say, unequivocally, I will act in your best interest, not in my own, not in my firm's. At all times. And the brokerage firm will say, the, bro- the broker will say, oh, my compliance department. Yeah, no, we'll always pass it back to compliance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's also the fault, I think, of the good guys, of the fiduciaries, of not having yet achieved something on the order of a good housekeeping seal of approval or underwriting lab stamp that um, we're putting it out there and you need to aspire to us. You know, you need to make it so that everybody asks for this out there because I can see it from a mom and pop perspective. And yes, mom and pop is not monolithic. You have a job to do. You know, as your client said, you're trying to keep your kids alive. You're trying to ferret your mommy, your mom back and forth between Florida and get her to a home. You would like to diffuse the responsibility responsibly. And there should be someone out there, an arbiter that that has a an uncorruptible stamp that could put it on these products or a way of x-raying these things and helping you, for example, when you do meet with that financial advisor, does this pass the test? And to be fair, there, there has been an evolution. I mean, there are a lot more people. I remember when NAPA first started, the, the association that Dave is a, is a board member of. Um, I remember when it first started, there were like 30 people who were members. And those 30 people were considered wackos. They were, you know, no no commissions, no, you know, only fees. And people actually talked about them as if they wore hair shirts, they focused in the woods, you know. And now NAPA has 5,000 members, something like that. And there are a lot more fee-only advisors out there. And so it's not like there hasn't been positive movement. The problem is that it's gotten polarized. You've got a number of people who are disgusted with the brokerage environment, people like Robin, you know, man, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? And, I'm, and, they, and they become fiduciaries. They become fiomi. They start working on, and they feel a lot better about themselves. And then you've got the brokerage firms, which are alarmed by this way. We, we just lost one of our better brokers because he went fiomi, for God's sake. And so the brokerage firms are pushing back just as hard as the forces of change are pushing against the non-fiduciary model, if that makes sense. And you know that? So now now we're in a battle. Now we're in a fight. And, and I think that's the, the last stage of the evolution. That, that leads me to ask you, Bob, you, you've had some you know experience and some um, you know, views into what has happened in this country, but what about what's happened in other countries like Australia and the UK, and you know, where commissions have been just regulated out of existence and those um, remaining professionals have found, you know what, hey, you know, there's life after 
uh, selling proprietary, you know, non-liquid upside down products. Can we take any lessons? Yeah, you know, I, well, I, I, I just spoke in India not long ago and um, gave kind of a long presentation about what people were doing in the U.S. And I spoke to a group of people who were equivalent to NAFA. They're not taking commissions. They're taking fees for their services. And they're not taking AUM fees. They're taking, um, you know, a retainer of some sort. A planning fee. And... What was interesting was they feel, they still feel like they're a beleaguered minority. That even though people are theoretically not allowed to give investment advice for a commission, people are still selling products and doing everything they can to avoid the appearance of giving investment advice while still giving. And so then I talked to somebody in Australia, and I talked to that person for an hour or two about, you know, what was going on there, and I said, so first thing I said was, so they've, they've banished commission, nobody's selling anymore, right? And he laughed. And he, I, I, I said, that sounds like I might be a little bit naive, that laughter, that he cackled, actually. And he said, well, here's what's happening. He said, the, the big banks, which are the ones, they're the equivalent of the warehouse firms here, are telling their, their all their brokers that they're now on salary and then they pay a, a bonus at the end of the year that looks suspiciously like what the commission would have been on whatever product they recommend and bring in. Hmm. And so, you know, the, the firms are finding end runs. Even in those markets, the firms are finding end runs around the, what what was a, a best effort to clean up the marketplace. I just had, and a- I, I think that the thing to remember about the U.S. is the brokerage firms are endlessly creative. They're not going to give up this. No matter what law you pass, they're going to find a way to circumvent it. I just I quickly just had this PTSD flashback. It's the way my mind works. I don't mean to hijack this interview, but I'm thinking back to circa 1999 at Goldman Sachs. The head of equity capital markets is a, a woman with such a mellifluous voice gets on the hoot and holler in New York and attention, you know, brokers, brokers, and then they come on and it's like, I'd like you to focus. Please focus. You're wondering if you're like in this new age retreat or if there's a higher calling. Focus, and then the upshot is we're doing a secondary offering with a doubled, you know, uh, bonus split for the broker. If you do this, if you push it out there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you've worked so hard to bring these clients on board, high net worth, 10 million and above people. I can understand the cynicism of, selling like some stale secondary with a high embedded commission to them if they realize that they're in it if look if i participate if i scratch your back you're going to give me some of that ipo as long as both sides understand that they're they're you know we're we're friends with benefits in this case and i'm kind of a fiduciary light but that really wasn't always the case i remember people saying wow and you really think this this is a good company this is a good oh yeah and you're getting it at a markdown to public and everything that just I, I, I have not thought about that for years and the way people who are paid all this money and use the name like a Goldman Sachs to make their brokers feel like there's a higher calling to ultimately just selling second day salad, you know? Well, and there's this perception that's out there that, you know, if you really want in on the smartest mm-hmm. ideas on the street, you've got to work with those guys because they've got access to these. Is there any empirical evidence that Goldman Sachs asset management or its trading desk has beaten the market? Just a plain no. old S&P 500. If they had, that'd be 
very is there clear any, about You hear Goldman Sachs, right? And you know that the bankers, like if you're, if if Tesla's going to do it or if Uber's, or, you know, you go to Goldman Sachs. These guys are the ones that don't mess around. But is there any evidence that they've done better than the market, which costs what five basis points now? Right. Nope. And Not some it. of the richest, no. most you know, savvy, high net worth investors never bothered to look at that. So, Sorry, I took you on a no, detour. That's, no, no, this is this is that's Bob great. asked me the world that I came from. In my <laughs> mind, you know, it's a bit like apocalypse now. But go ahead. So, so we're running a little bit short. I'm kind of kind of wishing I hadn't brought it up. Now. No, no, this is good. Well, maybe we'll have a part two. Um, hey, Bob, uh, in the last five minutes or so that we've got, um, what are your thoughts for the future of the profession? If we look five years out, is it any different? Is the AUM model still? The uh, preferred service model, is it still a polarized space out there with the good guys and the bad guys? What does it look like? Well, you said five years. I, I've been doing this for 36 years now, I think. <laughs> What's the years. 37 years. And, yeah, and my assumption all that time was all we got is in, in the next five years, we'll get it fixed. We'll just figure it out. And for 37 years, I've been saying that. And there has been progress. If you take a long enough look, there, there's visible progress. But five years isn't going to do it. But let's say ten. Okay. You go out ten years, and I think a lot more advisors are going to be specializing in particular types of clients, particular types of financial situations. And, in fact, I think you might start to see general practitioners special. So the general practitioner will... You, know, you come to the general practitioner with a financial equivalent of a spear in their chest. They figure out how to get, ease the pain and, and make the, the, the situation better. And then they may recommend that you work with somebody who works with people like you for the, the rest of your, your issues, if you will. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more, and, and the specialization will happen because people won't come to your office anymore to meet. They'll meet face to screen. They'll they'll have their phone, and they'll say, "I got a question, Dave. What do I do?" Or John, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to um, invest this inheritance. What do you think I should do? And you're looking at your computer screen, or you're looking at your phone, and they're looking at their phone, and, and they don't have to spend all that time coming in your office. And so there'll be a lot more better, more responsive advice. And notice it doesn't matter where that person is, is looking at the phone. That person could be in China. That person could be in San Francisco, and you guys are in Good Wilfie. Did I pronounce it right? By Good the job. Way? Did, Rob, yeah. Robin didn't get that right the first All time. Right. And, you know, and, and so what that means is that an advisor can work with anybody anywhere, but also a consumer can work with anybody anywhere, and people will gravitate for specialists. Now, you asked about the AUM, assets under management, um, as a percentage, charging as a percentage of assets. Never has there been a real profession where people said, how much do you charge? And you look back at them and you say, I'm not sure yet. How much do you got? I don't think that works as a profession. So I think there's going to have to be a, a retainer arrangement or you know some kind of a monthly subscription arrangement for getting advice. Um, it may be similar to, you know, you pay in, in, in like insurance price every every month for health insurance and you get help, you get service. Well, same sort of thing for a financial planning firm. I think that's how people are charged. Well, and th that's the and point too, right? It's, it's financial someday, planning, which is, there, there's, as my colleague 
uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Resource Advisory calls it. There's a lot more to money than money. And uh, right. Well, I think that's yeah. I had this written down in the beginning, which is depends on how you define advice. I think advice is a couple of things. One is execution. So if you need someone to just invest your portfolio in index funds and leave them alone, that's one thing. That's what robo-advisors are for or whatever. But then there's true planning and advice around taxes and, you know, legal and risk management. And not everybody needs planning. But I think the word advice and advisor, uh, you know, it's still a very vague term and it all just depends on what people are looking for. Because a lot of that's commoditized now and will continue to be. And the AUM model, again... Yeah, when, you, when you said I'm not... Go ahead, Bob. Well, when you said, I'm not sure everybody needs planning, I think everybody does need planning. They may not need an outside professional Fair, to do it correct. with them. I would agree with but, that. But um, the, the, the investments need to be managed, handled, and evaluated in the context of somebody's life. I think that's what's missing. But what is the... Particularly from the robo uh, offerings, and it's also missing in the brokerage offerings, I think. I would agree with that. What, what do you think the tipping point is, though, on the AUM changing more to a flat fee? I mean, we've been hearing for a while, you know, that it's just changing in favor of flat fees, but I think that needle hasn't really moved in the past five years. As you mentioned, it's been 35 for you, but in the past five years, it hasn't moved. It's still around, what, 8 or 9% flat fee versus the rest AUM. Um, yep. What do you see is going to change that? Well, you know, that, that's why I was so um, suspicious of that five-year time frame is because um, it, it, the, the, the way people are charging now works really well for baby boomers who have significant assets. It does not work very well for people who haven't accumulated significant assets, which may be anybody, baby boomers, greatest generation, younger people. And it certainly doesn't work for people who haven't had the time to accumulate significant assets yet. So I think the profession is going to have to evolve to a point where it works with anybody. That's the other thing about the profession is that there are not that many advisors. There are some, but not that many who will work with anybody who needs to come in. If you need a doctor, the doctor will work with anybody. You need a financial planner, not so much. So you have to, we have to get to the point where everybody has a, a revenue model that and work with a financial plan. So does that just mean that demand has to continue to swell uh, to, to be able to support uh, that type of a business model, or, or someone just needs to be... No, that's, that's not the way it works. The way it works is there are early adopters. Yeah. The early adopters figure that something out. They become prosperous, and everybody else wants to do that. And that's how it's going to have to work. Kind of like how it did with the AUM model probably back in the 80s, huh? That, 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 I remember it well. Yeah. I remember writing about it. People thought those people were crazy. Yeah, I was twelve, so I don't remember it that well. But anyway, all right. So yeah. this is uh, this is the the moment of the the podcast where we try and wrap it up. I'm going to let see if any uh, are there are any last thoughts from our guests. Time went really fast, and uh, we we appreciate that part of it. So, uh, Bob, since you're uh, since you're on West Coast time, let me get, let you go first. Any last thoughts that you'd like to share that maybe we uh, didn't touch on, or things you'd like to have uh, come across? I think the whole world of financial advice is ripe for disruption, and I think the people who actually care about their clients are the ones who do the disrupting. And I, I look forward to the day when the people who, who don't that much care about their customers and clients are put out of business. I think that's going to happen. 
Not in the next five years. But certainly not in the next 35 years. Somewhere in between. <laughs> I hope so. Don't tell me. Uh, That's right. Uh, Robin. In that, in that book I'm writing, in, in 300 years when that person wakes up in their star system, everybody will be a fiduciary. Amen. Robin, last thoughts. I know you call this part of your podcast something that I, I accidentally used last time, and I apologize. Free skate? Free skate. Anything? Uh, any, any Couples any, only. Any, Air <laughs> supply. <laughs> yeah, you know, the way my mind works. And again, feel free to just like lop this off the thing if it sounds crazy. But on the note, Bob, that you just shared and disruption, I don't like to cite millennial stuff all the time. Millennials prefer this. Millennials ruin this. And this. But I got to tell you, millennials... Younger people in general right now do not drink cans of Pepsi and Coke with the 40 grams of sugar in it. They drink seltzer water with nothing in it. If you walk into a CVS, nobody is buying the Oreo cookies, the middle of the grocery aisle. This is, it's all about a paucity of ingredients, three or four things on it. If you look at them, they have no uh, particular connection to a Wells Fargo Fidelity. They use Venmo because PayPal hasn't figured out to charge them for transfers yet. I mean, this whole chastened generation of people who uh, re remember um, not being gainfully employed, living with their parents and everything, I think that they're the ones who are going to augur the disruption. Their embedded kind of cheapskatiness is going to come in and force other players to kind of come to their thinking and their mentality. These are people who don't like many ingredients, don't like partially hydrogenated BS in the boilerplate, and they're going to demand the simplicity. It's why you've seen some of the wealthier ones at, at, at the Googles and the Facebooks of the world turning to robo-advisors. And I believe that this is both an opportunity and a, and a juggernaut for the industry, like a potential catastrophe. If you don't innovate, you're going to die. Well, well I, think, I think on that note, uh, why don't we wrap up there and maybe use that as a jumping off for part two later. Uh, Bob Veras, Robin Farzad, thank you both very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just for, for those folks who are still on the podcast, don't forget, uh, if you're not already, already a subscriber, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or check us out on Instagram or Twitter at EvoFi Podcast. With that said, we'll see you all in a few weeks. Take care now. Bye-bye.